I, I am an outsider and I have had to work really hard to prove myself, but I feel like not having specific processes that were taught to me through school or through another designer allowed me to find my own way. And it allowed me to trust myself more. I have to like feel my way through something rather than knowing my way to get to from point A to point B. But I also, I love that about it. I love that I can break the rules because I don't know the rules. You know, it, it feels, it feels really freeing. Hi, I'm Dan Rubenstein, and this is The Grand Tourist. I've been a design journalist for nearly 20 years, and this is my personalized guided tour to the worlds of fashion, art, architecture, food, and travel, all the elements of a well-lived life. The pandemic changed much, sending shockwaves through every industry, every way of life, every culture. In the world of home, food, design, and interiors, the world that came after the lockdowns lifted would find itself dramatically changed. After all, the podcast you're listening to right now wouldn't have happened without it. It's also meant new voices and new leaders in the culture of the American home. And unless you've been riding out the past four years or so under a rock, you'll know my guest today, Athena Calderon. A native New Yorker, Athena follows in the grand tradition of superstar tastemakers like Martha Stewart, Julia Child, and Dorothy Draper. Just don't call her an influencer. Born Athena Avella, who just happens to be married to the renowned DJ Victor Calderon, who any dance music fan will know from his work with the likes of Madonna, Sting, and others, has for more than a decade run her own online platform called iSwoon. What started purely on social media, originally on Tumblr, really found its groove on Instagram. Today, with more than one million followers, she's single-handedly leading a conversation about the modern home that combines thoughtful design that anyone can enjoy, uncomplicated cuisine that looks as good as it tastes, and leading by example online where her fans and followers can follow and mimic her style from what she wears to how she lives. She's written multiple best-selling books, including a cookbook that won a James Beard Award, and her recent collection with Crate and Barrel has been a massive hit. Think lots of signature organic materials paired with mid-century French references, selling more in the first few months than what they had projected to sell over an entire year. What makes Athena Calderon so fascinating to me is how her story has evolved in this new social media age and how her circle of friends and collaborators both fuel her personal and creative lives. And that brings us to this special episode. After we chat a bit about how Icewoon began and how she built her own burgeoning lifestyle empire, We'll welcome some of her friends and mine to call in to get some advice straight from the guru herself. More on that later. But first, we speak about Athena's self-made journey of discovery, from modeling and interior design to author and now domestic goddess. I know, you know, we've never worked together per se, but we did share some personal stories uh, at a party recently where we discovered that we're, we're both uh, Long Islanders. Yes, we are. And for those that don't know, Long Island, New York, uh, the, essentially the large s- suburban area outside of New York and before you hit the famous Hamptons. Um, tell me a little bit about you know your, your early life and your life before moving to the city and sort of starting your career. Well, first and foremost, Dan, thank you for having me. And um, yeah, I loved finding out that you were also from Long Island and also not the fancy part of Long Island from Nassau County rather than Suffolk County. So which leads me into kind of my upbringing. Um, I grew up um, in, I guess, a lower to middle class family. My parents were both hairdressers. 
um, not educated, neither one of them. I don't even think finished high school, let alone go, went to college. Italian American family. You know, we, we grew, I grew up, um, with creativity surrounding me for sure. Like I always grew up, my parents owned a hair salon while my dad owned a hair salon. I grew up around a lot of care about aesthetics, I guess you could say. I wouldn't say that, you know, anything about my upbringing was fancy. Nothing from the um, design of our homes to how, you know, my parents dressed and how I dressed or the cars that we had. We grew up very kind of modest, modestly. Um, but there was always an awareness of, you know, how you held yourself and how your home looked. And my mom paid a lot of attention to our home and was always rearranging our homes. Even though we didn't have anything fancy, she would always just kind of like breathe new life into our spaces. And it was something that I just remember always growing up around. So like, you know, after high school, like, what did you do? Where did you go? Because uh, my my knowledge of your sort of adult life starts with stories that I've read of you meeting your husband. Yes. But tell me about that. Like how in terms of like your early adulthood and how you kind of started your career. Um, I studied dance in college and um, had a boyfriend that was a dancer. And probably that's why I went into that. When that relationship ended, it was like my first boyfriend. I just up and left and moved to New York City. And, um, and then and shifted and went to FIT. So I kept like, I kept jumping around and part of my insecurity, but also part of my success to this day is that I jumped around. Like it always made me feel like I, I wasn't sure enough of myself or had clarity of what I wanted to be. But instead, I just kept trying different things on for size. So when I moved to New York City, I was a bartender at the Limelight and the Tunnel and the Palladium. Three very famous clubs. <laughs> Three very famous nightclubs in the late nineties. Yes, absolutely. yeah. I was always like a a kind of quote unquote good girl. Like I I did the right thing. I wasn't like I I didn't party. I didn't drink. I, I didn't sleep around. Like I was just like I did things the quote unquote right way. And when I moved to New York City, I wanted to be this like badass. So like I shaved my head. I pierced my septum. I Whoa. wanted to be this like badass like bad girl, even though I wasn't, but I was just, again, trying something new on for size and seeing if it fit. Um, I was doing a little bit of modeling at the time. And then I shortly thereafter went to acting school and I thought I wanted to be an actress. And I really dove deep into like three years of studying method acting. And that was that was kind of my path when I met Victor, who's my husband, um, who was a DJ, and we met in the nightclub. And our kind of um, life and world. I got married very young. I had a baby very young. And I still hadn't figured out who I was, what I was meant to offer this world creatively. Um, but when I had a baby and I had this like beautiful family life, I kind of put Athena on hold because I just kind of reveled in um, the beauty that was kind of and the the joys and like the 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 pride of of this beautiful family that I luckily manifested and and um, brought to life. And I didn't know at the time where I, I was going to go creatively. And if I was, you know, in my late 20s, and everyone around me was 
figuring out their career life, you know, out in the world, defining who they were. And I felt a little bit like I was hiding out at home and just losing myself in family, which felt beautiful, but it also felt like I was ignoring a really important piece of myself. But all the while, I was traveling a lot. And, you know, I didn't say this earlier, but, you know, where I grew up, and I I assume where you did too, I was very sheltered. There was no culture. There was no museums. There was no um, understanding, you know, different flavors of the world, different patinas of the world, architecture. Like, I didn't grow up with any awareness of that. So when um, when Victor was on the road as a, as a DJ and a music producer, we were tra- we were traveling. So I you know I took our baby and I went on the road with him, and all of a sudden, so much was revealed to me. So I I, I stepped into the side of myself where I was just you know my eyes were so wide open, absorbing so much of the world, ripe to kind of explore them all and bring them back home into my world in Brooklyn. We had um, a loft in Dumbo that Victor and I scrounged together money to purchase. And after traveling to all these amazing places, I would start shopping for all the ingredients and did my best to try to replicate, you know, a, a fish that I had in Greece or, you know, a tagine that I had in Morocco. And also I would start to kind of like play around with different pieces that I would collect on my travels and going to, you know, either an antique shop or a market. So all of a sudden food and design made their way into my home life. So I just started to dive into interior design and, you know, start to do research on, you know, some of the designers and the architects that I would see at museums when I was traveling, or I started reading cookbooks like I would a novel. And I started like diving into like Epicurious and reading reviews on recipes and I just started to self-educate in the thing that I was encompassed in, which was the home. And it wasn't design or food. It was both of them in tandem. And our best friend at the time, um, his name is John Rollins, and he's an incredible interior designer. He would always help um, me and Victor with our homes when we were wanted to like make any, you know, minor improvements or, you know, I didn't know anything about interior design or interior designers, but that's what he did. So I learned about um, interior design through him. And, um, and he was the one who eventually said to me, like, you really have, you know, a, a strong point of view for design, like maybe this is something that you should explore. And is that when is that when you went to Parsons? I did, and and I I do want to. What year was that? Just to kind of like. I think it was around two thousand two or two thousand three, um, and I didn't. I want to clarify because I know I've said I've gone to Parsons before. I, I did not get a design degree. I I like took a couple of courses, but I did. I don't have a degree in design, but I um I took classes with his urging, um, especially because he hand sketches, and I just. I absolutely love the the beauty of a hand sketch. So I like took sketching courses and more than anything, what that offered me was it like gave me this boost of confidence that I could start to like speak the design language a little bit more. And, and, you know, I mean, beyond learning technical side of things, I did feel like I was really yearning for that, like way to verbally express myself, which like, I guess I'm realizing there's this theme about like self-expression and, and, 
self-education. And how did that sort of evolve into iSwoon and like you kind of creating content around all of this? Because at some point you must have felt like confident enough that you were like, you know, obviously there's a theme of like a lack of confidence. But then at a certain point you were like, not only am I confident, but I'm going to like, you know, share this with the world, essentially. Yeah. I mean, I, um, I swoon was born because I was, I was cooking so much and having all these incredible dinner parties and inviting my friends, like almost as a form of manipulation to like lure people a into my home that I was feeling very proud of. And I would kind of like create this beautiful tablescape and set the lighting right and the mood light and the, the music and, and the meal. Um, so that was like my first foray into entertaining, but people would ask me about my design sense and where I got things. And they would also ask me for the recipe that I had created because I was really like pushing the boundaries and testing myself and, you know, creating pastry and, you know, just like stepping outside of like a lot of the, the, the food that most people in my orbit were eating. So I was like, testing myself and pushing the boundaries and everyone would always ask me for the recipes or for the design advice. So I soon really was like more so of a way for me to share those recipes and, you know, the, 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 the knowledge that I was accumulating over time. Um, surrounding design. So iSpoon was really like, was feeling really isolated and I wanted more community. And I was like putting things out there. I was just like, and and still to this day, I don't think that there are a lot of people that straddle both food and design. And I felt like I was like, they were both happening simultaneously. And I would just like, you know, share my ideas of what I thought was happening in the design world, take photos that were like really poorly taken and blurry and like overly saturated. Like I didn't know what I was doing, but I just was finally felt like I was like grasping hold of something that I felt, you know, was gaining some traction and that I felt like proud of and confident. And I just kind of kept leaning into it. And and I'll just never forget, like, I finally felt like I'm, I'm finding my people. I'm finding people that have similar interests. And I'm kind of leveraging their knowledge to help further my own. You know, like, I felt like it was this way of like, I get to learn, but then I also get to share what I've learned. And, and I just felt like I'd finally found purpose in life. Before we return to Athena, a word from our sponsor, Lumens. We're living in a golden age of design where architects, interior designers, and aesthetes have access to nearly every brand in the world. As this magazine veteran knows all too well, a trusted source is essential to any successful design story. That's where Lumens comes in. As the preeminent destination for grand tourist-worthy lighting, furniture, and accessories, Lumens carries designs from more than 350 global brands with in-house service and account specialists that are your personal connection to good design. Lumens curates authentic designs that run the gamut from iconic pieces to of-the-moment exclusives designers fans of this podcast will certainly recognize, like Piero Lissoni, Philippe Stark, and Patrizia Urquiola. While the Grand Tourist can hardly boil an egg, if you're looking to entertain a bit on the level of Athena Caldron, you'll need to do some serious shopping on the tabletop and entertaining section of Lumens.com. There you'll find all kinds of essential design-driven brands from around the globe, including many of my favorites, such as Alessi, Tom Dixon, Itala, and Soletti. That way, even if your idea of a resplendent buffet contains a lot of takeout Chinese, you'll be doing it in high style. To impress that impossibly opinionated dinner guest that will have them saying, where did you get that? Do your sourcing on Lumens.com. 
and uh, that actually brings me to my ne- one of my questions um, is that you know we you've mentioned this kind of like sense of like an imposter syndrome in a sense where you're kind of growing this you know like level of fame and this huge business and these best selling books and all of this stuff that's super successful but you're of course like self you know you're downing yourself a, a little bit but what I'm curious about you know to the many people. So, for example, your book, Live Beautifully, which is more about design than it is about, you know, it's not a cookbook. What do you think, you know, you mentioned to someone that, like, you know, you you don't know CAD, right? Like, you know, you're not like that kind of a technical draft, draftsman. Like, what do you think an interior designer who, like, went to school, has a, you know, master's degree in design and, like, is a technical wizard and can, like, build a skyscraper and they've done monographs about, like, lifestyle and stuff and you're sold 10 times as much. Why do you think, what do you think they could learn from your books that made them so successful? Because it's, there must be something that you do that is, you know, just like, you know, Martha Stewart had like something, you know, something very specific that she kind of brought to the world at a certain period of time. And now you're bringing something to the world that's, that was, or that is, new and different and unique. So what do you think that unique thing is that you think professionals, you know, people who are, you know, they have letters after their name. Yes. (laughs) Could could learn. Well, first of all, I will say that they all wholeheartedly believe that I am a fraud and I'm okay with them feeling that way. (laughs) Do you get that from people? Like, do do you, do you feel like, I mean, not from everybody. I mean, some of my best friends are, are designers and in the design world. And I feel like we're, we're, we all really kind of like our sharers and help one another out. But I do think that there is a large community of people that like, they're like, wait, what? Like, huh? I don't, I don't get it. That question why I, 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 I am an authority in the design space. Like why, why people consider me a design expert or a culinary expert. I think what it is, is that I pull back the curtain. I think that my honesty, my transparency, even my insecurity comes off as approachable or accessible or human. I think that, you know, we are all moving into this world in design where everyone, you know, with kind of first dibs and with Pinterest, like so many people, you know, consider themselves a designer or like it's not as proprietary anymore. The way people kept like design and their design secrets like really guarded and really safe. I don't, I don't do that. I'm kind of an open book. I really share my process. And, and that is something. I think that that is why I soon and then my success in the books was was successful. I think that I've always been obsessed with process. I've been obsessed with creativity, like how, even how a song is made, what comes first, the lyrics or the the music or when you're designing a space, is it like is it the the architecture or the material? Like I've just always been fascinated about how the pieces come into play. And as I've learned, I've shared and as I've, I think that a lot of designers don't know how to share their process or they don't want to share their process or they just want to show the accolades. And I want to kind of get to the underbelly of like how I got there and how I struggled or how I overcame or how, why I like contrast in a space or why you know, I want to play with juxtaposition or asymmetry. Like I, I just, I, I get into the why 
of what I do rather than just a look at what I've done. So when so when people are, you know, asking you like where to get things and you're kind of making this transition right from being a journalist or being like a curator, you know, right into being a designer and you mentioned like that this is also like a, you know, it's been scary too because you have to learn all these new things. Like what do you think that you've learned like in this past year that has been like the biggest lesson or like or the hardest lesson? That's a really good question. I mean, I would probably the fact that I'm I'm a bit of a control freak and I have my way that I like to do things, but in order to scale and grow my business, I have to put a lot of trust in other people. So it's been letting go and it's been trusting my editorial director and trusting the social person that I've recently hired rather than doing the social myself. Like I up until this year I had done all of my social myself and you know now it's like somebody helping me with putting together I never had a content calendar for my social like every day I would like you know just be like okay just well wing, wing it. it and there's something yeah. really beautiful in winging it right but now I don't want to wing it anymore I want to grow a business and I want to grow it with guidance from people that actually know more than me so I think that one of the biggest lessons really has been letting go and trusting that it's going to change it's going to be different I mean a lot of people also have been commenting that you know things feel different because now I'm pushing product, whether it's the Crate and Barrel collection or whether it's my own items that I'm selling on iSpoon. You know, I always want content to be at the core of what I do. I always want to kind of show people the, the, the creative process of how to style within your home. But now I also have the product. So it's going to, it's going to change. Icewind is going to change, but it's changing because that's what people were asking of me. And it's changing because I want to grow and expand because every, every of the, every one of the moments that have been challenging me this past year, I am so grateful for because like, just when you think that you're about to snap and you're stretched beyond your means, like, you know, you, you, you learn, you expand, you, you find a new way to navigate and, you know, then it, it, it's, you know, you move on to the next. So I, I like to be stretched beyond my means because I want to continue to grow. I mean, it's so many people, I mean, when you get into designing things, right. You know, there are collaborations you could do with like Crate and Barrel or, or what have you, but there's also like selling things in your own. And I think if you've been in this business long enough, like you've realized how much the retail universe has changed, how people consume fashion and home and food, even like what that's like. I mean, is there anything, you know, what have you learned about that sort of universe in the past like year or so of like this sort of like e-commerce part of style, which I think in the past that didn't really exist. You went to a show, you showed things to buyers. The buyers did that, right? The buyers then went to retailers. And now, now you have to think about this kind of thing all on your own, as do many other people. I'm wondering if there's any kind of pearls of wisdom that maybe you've or just like realized as as sort of a e-commerce new per, you know, newbie in that sense. Yeah. I mean, I'm definitely a newbie. And and I mean, to be quite honest, I never really envisioned iSpoon. Like, you know, so many people have said, what's your five-year plan? I never envisioned an e-commerce platform for iSpoon. You know, it was revealed to me. I guess something that I have found is I feel really fortunate 
that I've built a really beautifully trusted audience because maybe I wasn't pushing product for so long and it was just about the things that I've curated for my own home. So I guess one of the things that I've learned with e-commerce is that I want to make sure everything that I curate on iSwoon feels authentic to me because everything that I think I feel that I've built thus far is authentic. Like I share recipes and I share design within my own home that feels true and it feels real. And I think that that's why my, my audience has grown, um, especially over the past couple of years is because it feels authentic because I was doing what I'm doing now in my twenties and I have grown up and shared as I've grown. Um, so I want to make sure that the e-commerce still feels like me. It still feels like the glassware that I'm curating. I don't want to have 50 glasses. I want it to be a tight edit. I want it to remain trusted. I want, and I want different varied price points. I think that right now at the launch of iSwoon, maybe certain things were, have been now at too high of a price point. I want variation. I want people to come to iSwoon for their basics, but I also want them to be able to you know, find something that is, you know, from an artisan that they have to wait 12 weeks for because it's something really special. Like I want, you know, if if I can be like the elevated, beautiful version of Bed Bath & Beyond where like you could buy everything from your soda stream to a really beautifully designed vacuum and your glassware as well as, you know, your bedding, I, I would love that. And I, I'm really... My, my world, my universes have expanded so much, but they, everything that I do have, has always been holistic and under the umbrella of the home. So now giving the product to the people and curating that feels like a complete circle of, you know, the, the, the content, the product, and the, the, the distilling of the how-to is all kind of working together now. Like there's something that really feels like, oh, this is this is where I'm meant to be. And do you have like a new five-year plan or are you someone who has to like rethink your five-year plan every five months? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I want to make sure that I don't get in my own way. Like I love beautiful things and I love elevated things and I don't want... I don't want to get in my own way and not allow iSwoon to grow and scale to the masses. You know, I think that part of the success of the Crate and Barrel collection was that I took, you know, a lot of pieces that were in my home that are out of reach for people, whether they're, you know, rare, rare vintage pieces or just too expensive. And I offered a little bit of that. I think that there's an appreciation that I, I share information, I share my eye for design um, and offering things that were out of reach for so long. And I want to do that for iSwoon too. I don't want to circle back yet in my own way that things are so elevated that it can't scale. I want to scale. I want to grow this business. Um, I want to step into the business side. You know, for so long, I leaned into the creative side of things and creating content for other brands. Now I'm the brand and I'm creating the beautiful content for my own brand. And that feels really freaking good. Before we return to Athena Calderon, a word from our sponsor, Ann Sachs. In the world of inspired interiors, there are a few brands that have become synonymous with timeless American style. As an interiors editor for nearly 20 years, one name comes up again and again, Ann Sachs. The brand opened its Portland, Oregon factory 30 years ago, realizing a vision to produce the finest handcrafted tile, showcasing modern, timeless design. 
ANSAC's latest achievement is the introduction of stone slabs, a key element to the design of any kitchen, bathroom counter, shower surround, or if you're lucky, home bar. With the company's incredible assortment as a foundation, ANSAC's is offering a curated assortment of the world's most premium stones, stone mosaics, and accompanying slabs. And this September, the company will open its third slab gallery in New York's Long Island City, after its first two in Dallas and Nashville. At these incredible one-stop destinations, you'll be able to work hand-in-hand with their design associates on everything surface-related. For more information about any ANSAC's tile or stone, or to find a showroom near you, visit ansax.com. And now, in an effort to live out my own FM radio host fantasies, Athena and I have opened up our address books to get some earnest questions from some of the sharpest, most influential minds in the world of style. From interior designers like Andre Malone and Eric Egan, to Chef Missy Robbins, fashion designers Aurora James and Jason Wu, fashion and interior designer Jenna Lyons, and others. We are going to be fielding some questions from uh, your Rolodex and mine and people calling in with uh, burning questions. And as it comes, it's all about sharing and advice. So before we get started with those, um, I have my own just to kick us off. Sure. Um, Have you met Martha Stewart? (laughs) And if so, what was that like? Oh, my goodness. It's such a great question. Um, You know that... Um, one of the first pieces of press that I ever got when I first started was from T Magazine and they called me the Mar- the modern day Martha Stewart. And it was like, are you kidding me? Like that is wow. everything. Um, and I've, um, I've never shared that with her. I have met her a few times. Most recently, I have the craziest story that I'm going to share, but most recently, just um, a few weeks ago, I went to a dinner that she was at and um, I really, really wanted to like find a clever way to strike up a conversation because my wedding was actually in Martha Stewart weddings. So like, you know, for, you know, 24 years ago. So I kind of wanted to let her know that, but also I didn't want to tell her I was touted the modern day Martha Stewart, but I just like wanted to her to know that like she kind of paved the way for me. But anyway, at this dinner, I didn't really quite find the the window to chat with her. Um, But then at one point, she actually approached me and she, you know, randomly, nothing to do with what I did, because I don't even think she knew what I did. But she said to, you know, she brought up something about like how her grandkids went to the same school that my son went to and I don't know who told her that but like anyway we struck up a conversation and I shared with her three years ago pre-pandemic I was at a breakfast for Tiffany's during the holidays and um, we walked out of the breakfast at Tiffany at the same time and Martha's car I don't know she couldn't find her car she'd never taken an Uber before and I helped her take her first Uber I like helped her like (laughs) on the app and like figure out like how to get her first Uber. Anyway, unbeknownst to me, I told her that I was that person. I just said, oh, by the way, like I I wasn't selling myself as like the modern day Martha, but I was like, by the way, we met before and I helped you take your first Uber. So she proceeds to tell me how she took that first Uber, how it was the most horrific experience 
ever <laughs> and how it was a filthy Uber and how, oh, no. yeah. Anyway, she took photos of her dirty Uber and posted it on Instagram. And she says to me, she goes, you know, I have to thank you. And I was like, well, what do you have to thank me for? She says, well, that Uber was so filthy. I ended up taking photos of it and putting it on my Instagram. And do you know what? Instagram was so upset at my first experience that they gave her like a crazy amount of shares in Uber. And she was like, I'm basically like an investor in Uber now because of you, Athena. <laughs> oh my God. Wow. <laughs> Who knew? Anyway, is, I've, yeah, that, I've, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Like, I don't know if that's really relevant to like our conversation, but anyway. Oh, it's relevant. It's relevant. It's relevant. Anyway. That's going in. That's, that's going in. Okay. Um, okay. Uh, here is our first, here's our first question. Hi, Athena. It's Aurora. I have a question for you. So you and I have something very major in common. We both love to travel and we both love to collect things on our travels. I'm just wondering how you think about bringing culture into your space in a way that makes it feel special, different, and really honored. Mm, God, what a beautiful question. I make it a habit, no matter where I travel to, to find something from that culture to bring home and something where you really, you know, it could be something new and that's made by, you know, an, an artist that is celebrated or an unknown artist from that, that, that part of the world, or it could be something vintage. But, um, I really, I really feel like what you want when you walk into any home is for somebody to be kind of curious or to feel calm, or to feel um, relaxed, or to feel like there's um, there's there's soul in the pieces that you have. So I think that you know, I think that it's really important to know the stories and know the artisans and be able to tell those stories and to look at those pieces and feel those stories because I think that that is all felt when you walk into a space. It, it doesn't work if you just like collect something but you don't understand the history behind it. I think that, you know, traveling and culture and collecting has been a little bit of my own self-education. And, um, you know, I like to do my research and understand the, the, the history of pieces from Peru and how the ceramic was made. And, you know, I just think that that, that, that adds to kind of the cultural energy within your space. All right. Our next question comes from Eric Egan, a friend of mine based in Milan, who's a designer, and he works with hotels like Mandarin Oriental and Belmond. And uh, here we go. Hi, Athena. This is Eric Egan. I'm an interior designer based in Milan. I'd like to know, how did you get to a million followers on Instagram? <laughs> I I would say that that number one is uh, Instagram number NB is become, it always sounds like really trivial, but of course, like in the design world, it's something that gives, I think, most designers like a lot of like like agita <laughs> you know and how did you like what was your you know what if you give if you had to give you know creatives out there um three tips on on growing your following mm -hmm. right which <laughs> what would you say what's your yeah i would say that there's a few things that i think that set me apart for growing my instagram one was that i wasn't just design that I would mix my world, my life. Um, yes, it would be, you know, sharing my homes and design, but also showing family life, um, sharing vulnerability. Like I, I really think that like 
I, I know I said this before, but like I'm a sharer to the core and I'm not afraid to be really candid in my shortcomings or my uncertainties. And I think that like being vulnerable and like sharing, you know, my own journey has allowed people to connect and relate to me more. And then I also think that the culinary side of things, like people, um, just responded well. Like even when I, when I wrote my cookbook, which won a James Beard award, Cook Beautiful, it, it sold okay, but it didn't sell incredibly. But it wasn't until I started making the recipes on my stories and showing people like, it's not just this beautiful plate of food, but like, let me take you through the process and share with you some of like the tools and the techniques that I've learned. And and it was when I would peel away the onion or the, the layer of, you know, um, and share people my, share with people my process that they suddenly had access not only to me, but to giving them the confidence to create a recipe. So I feel like I did exactly that with both food and design. Before the pandemic, my following was at three around 300,000. And my following went up almost 400,000 followers over the pandemic or 300,000 followers over the pandemic. And that was really because not only were we all home, but we were all trying to find love of home. And I kind of took that as an opportunity to share these videos of, you know, whether it be like wiping my shelves clean and shopping around my own home and teaching people like, okay, like this is what, this is why these two objects work together. This is how I'm making sure I play with materiality and scale and contrast. And I would talk people through my process of, of how I got to a recipe or how I got to a beautiful design vignette. And, and, and I just think that that's what people resonated with people. So I guess my point is for designers, it's educational. Yeah. I I think that share more about the why you did what you did, not just a, this is my beautiful project. Um, And also like consistency, like a a point of view. Like I, I remember somebody saying to me very early on in my career, when people look at your Instagram, they should know, oh, that's, that's Athena Calderon. That's Isoon. And I think anyone that has had incredible success, look at Colin King. You know, like you look, he has a tone, he has a vibe, he has a feeling. And I, I, I've heard people say time and time again, when I look at an image of yours, I know it's you before I even look at whose account it is. So I think that like really identifying what your point of view is, is something that is um, super important. And also consistency. You need to post regularly and, you know, and also like, you know, I way prefer a photo than a reel, but if I know Instagram is going to push me, if I do a reel, I'm going to find my version that I feel comfortable with of doing a reel. I guess keep up with the, the, the trend of, of Instagram and social media. Like you can't, you can't just stay stagnant in your own ways. You need to continue to, uh, to evolve and step outside of your comfort zone and, and, and share more. Before we return to Athena Calderon, a word from our sponsor, 111 West 57th Street. This latest architectural icon in New York is a design tour de force that sets a new standard for ultra-luxury living. Perfectly situated over Central Park, the 111 West 57th Street Tower, with its bold yet slender silhouette, was designed by the highly lauded office of Shop Architects. And at 1,428 feet high, it's the second tallest residential building in the Western Hemisphere. At its base is the original landmarked Steinway Hall, originally built in 1925. The interior architecture of 111 West 57th Street 
takes inspiration from the original Warren and Wetmore design building to create monumental spaces and a stunning collection of amenities, all by legendary designer William Sofield. And this long-anticipated project, created by JDS Development Group, recently celebrated a major milestone by fully unveiling new interiors of its amenity spaces, which herald the completion of the monumental project. As this grand tourist can attest, with the combination of stunning interiors, unparalleled amenities, and historic architecture, the likes of 111 157th Street will not likely be seen again in the same way in our lifetimes. For more information about properties, visit 111w57.com. That's 111w57.com. Yeah, uh, here is one from Jenna Lyons. Okay. Hi, Athena. What would you say is the biggest design risk you've ever taken, and how did it work out? Mm. Yeah, so Jenna Lyons would like to know what your biggest design risk was. Was perhaps it was a home? Because I mean, obviously, you you're um, you you know you a lot of your work is shot at ho- shot at home, created at home. It's all your own space. So, yeah. Uh, what was the biggest risk you ever took? Uh, I think that one of the design risks and something that I'm really known for, for the townhouse that I live in right now is the, my kitchen. Um, it's really hard to reinvent yourself, right? Like, you know, design is iterative. We're all inspired by other people. But I, I stumbled upon something when I was designing my kitchen it was that I knew I was going to be shooting a lot of content in my kitchen. And I knew that, um, you know, I set up the the orientation of my kitchen knowing like I, I wanted side light for shooting video. I needed an island that had nothing in it so that I can chop beside someone if I'm shooting a cooking video. But in an effort to kind of fill this vertical void, I put this vintage vessel on the center of my island and I put these mas- massive branches in it because I was hosting an event and it just looked really vacant. And all of a sudden, unbeknownst to me, I started this like movement of these like branches being this like (laughs) design statement in a house. And I mean, I never knew that like branches and like these massive vessel with branches would like take off like wildfire. But I guess I'm saying like what what I did wasn't a risk. It was almost more of like filling a void literally and figuratively. Like I needed something to fill that void, but I also didn't... um, I didn't fill that void just to kind of like fill it. Like so many people oftentimes in design, they just like buy something because like they need to get something. And so I think that the biggest risk that I take is almost patience and allowing the space to reveal to me what it's needed rather than me inserting, you know, just something to, to, to kind of fill a void. Like I think that, you know, patience is a huge thing that I exercise when I'm designing a space. And sometimes I think when you um, make choices on plan, and maybe this is also an answer to like why not being professionally trained helps. Like sometimes when you follow a plan too precisely, it doesn't leave enough space for the magic of design and that moment where i put those branches it was like the it was like the magic that i never could have planned on paper that kind of just it just happened and and i feel like it's what my space is known for here is a question from andre malone uh he's an interior designer based here in new york hi athena it's andre malone your biggest fan really we'll talk about that some other time i think you've been so great at creating a look that is so you and so contemporary but everything feels very lived in so i want to know what are your tips for making 
people's homes feel like they are lived in because okay so you know creating this kind of like lived in look sure i which i think kind of means different things to different people i remember like a really long time ago there was like shabby chic and that that whole thing which like everything needed to look like it was an antique somehow that was never touched yeah kind of thing. <laughs> um i do think that the reason Andre or maybe other people feel that my homes have personality. And I, I think that I think that I very much trust my instincts when I see something that I love. And that would even mean if it's something that doesn't necessarily quote unquote in the design world go together. Like I love to mix periods. I love to mix things that feel really kind of slick and contemporary and modernist with something that has, you know, a, a time-worn history and a patina to it. I think that it's about that like smash of styles that really allows you to find your own self-expression. Uh, I also think that I I think that because my des- my design sense really came a lot from the world of travel that me accumulating and collecting things that kind of has a bit of not only history but memory um if i i honestly believe that when you walk into a space and, and and things feel collected and not just like you know you went to one store and bought everything all at once that you know it it has this essence and this feeling um and a sentiment to it and i think that you know uh a home needs to have a soul and it doesn't have a soul if everything is just like all brand new or all purchased um, from there's, a singular. There's no, yeah, there's no like preciousness to, I would say, your designs. There's not a lot of like, uh, you know, anything flowery or kind of too dainty or too perfect or, you know, everything is a little bit, looks like you could actually use it daily, right? Yeah. And, Yes, absolutely. And I, I'm speaking of preciousness, like I do not care if people put their feet up on my table. I do not care if wine is spilled on my marble table. Like I, you know, I don't I I I, I expect everybody to like sit on my kitchen island. Like I there is nothing precious about my homes. I love design and I love for things to look a up a specific way aesthetically, but I don't mind things getting tossed and tumbled and, you know, shoes in my home when I'm having a party. Like, I just like, I, I, I want a home to be experienced. And I think that's because I was in my home and pulled people into my home at such a young age, because like, I just, I needed people around. I needed community. I needed warmth and laughter. And like, I just always wanted a home to feel lived in and loved and experienced rather than just a showpiece. All right. Next up, we have a a question from Missy Robbins. Hi, Athena. It's Missy Robbins. As you know, I am a huge fan of you, your style, your design aesthetic, your cooking. And while I'm a chef and that's what I'm known for, uh, I also have just a huge passion for home design, restaurant design, object design. And I want to know when you're designing a room, a space, furniture, what are your sort of three non-negotiable guiding principles that you lead with? Wow. Three non-negotiable things. So like, let's say you were, uh, you discover that there is a room in your townhouse that you didn't know existed. Every New Yorker's 
best dream ever. You discover that there's this room and it's completely bare uh, down to the studs. And, you know, you start on that process of designing that space. Um, three guiding principles. Three guiding principles. Um, for one, I feel like you absolutely have to be aware of how you're filling a space from top to bottom, vertically, the volume. N a lot of times people have everything on a singular plane, like your sofa and your coffee table and your side table and your lighting is all kind of at eye level or below. I think that something people often forget is to allow the eye to dance and move up and down. And you could do that with um, floor lamps. You can do that with artwork. You can do that with sculpture. Um, you really want to kind of have a better understanding of how the space is experienced if you're, you know, just somebody steps into that room and is just looking across that room. You don't want the eye to only be on a singular plane. So that's one thing that I do always think of. I also think of how certain things connect to the floor. And I know that sounds really odd, but like playing with scale and volume, I think is also really important. So if you have like a sofa that is really kind of heavy and bulbous, you kind of want to pair it with something that feels a little bit more like leggy and not as dense or vice versa. If you have like a very leggy kind of table, you want to, you know, pair it next to something that has like a little bit more, more of kind of like girth or, or weightedness. So yeah, think about like the legs and how things are connecting to the floor. I also think that playing with materiality is something that is absolutely essential. I, oftentimes, there's too much slickness or there's too much upholstery, and you really want to play with a variety of those things, making sure there are natural elements, there's wood elements, making sure there's something that has a sheen and a shine to it, something that feels cuddly and, and tactile. Um, is something that I love. And then I know that I'm going into a fourth one, but also playing with contrast and juxtaposition is something that I always think is really necessary. Um, you know, whether that is playing with various periods, pairing something that's super slick and modern with something that has a more historical references, you know, just where is that tension and where is that, you know, you want people to be curious, you want the eye to linger. And if everything is one noted, it's kind of hard to, to have that. Our good friend, uh, Zach Weiss, um, influencer extraordinaire, um, has a question. Hi, Athena. Hi, Dan. It's Zach Weiss here, longtime listener and a first time caller here. Um, I would love to know what are some interior design tropes that you both feel are maybe oversaturated um, and particular to New York City? All right. That's I have I have a I have one that I've thought about um, that I have some personal peeves. That's New York to me, at least New York specific. Mm. Um um, now I'm curious. You want me to go first? Okay, or? I'll go first. I'll go first. Um, uh, I really despise walking through uh, a really expensive neighborhood and looking into multi-million dollar homes five times the size of mine and seeing those little shelves that lean against the wall like everyone buys the little bookshelf that looks like a ladder <laughs> but that's like turned into do you know what i mean it's kind of like and everybody just buys it and and then fills it up in five seconds and it just kind of floats in a room and it just like leans against the wall i kind of hate that wow i, like, I kind of feel like that is just something that i i think about and i see so often um 
and I kind of see as like a little bit of a a little bit of a peeve. Yeah. A peeve of pet peeve of mine in terms of design in New York. And I don't think I've I don't think I see that in other in other places that I go to. I think it has something to do with everyone thinks that their place is so small they have to buy this the, the smallest bookshelf possible. That's so interesting. Um, so this question is supposed to be geared mostly towards New York, or can I go beyond well, that? Yeah, well, I don't know. Any kind of any kind of design pet peeve, but maybe it's New York, maybe not. Yeah. Well, I will share that I there, there's probably two things that I feel like I might be responsible for. One is Uh-oh. like the kitchen with the marble countertop up the marble backsplash to turn into a shelf. I feel like I just think that we need to figure out what's next in kitchen design. And I just feel like we, I keep seeing that time and time again. I really struggle with anything that is faux. Like I really don't like shiny brass that has been lacquered and doesn't change its patina. Like it just looks cheap and fake to me. And I feel the same way about, and I think that this is a big issue that designers need to start changing how they educate their clients about that everybody outside of New York thinks that you should never use real marble, that you should use quartz or you should use um, granite because like marble is such a soft material that like, I can't tell you how many DMs that I get of people saying like my designer or my contractor said like, I should never use marble. Like think about how much like in Rome and in France and like pizzerias, like people are using marble, like, and it's getting mucked up and scratched and etched and stained. Like, it drives me kind of crazy that like there is this idea that people shouldn't use a natural stone like marble. So that kind of bothers me. That's a good one. I think that, you know, that's obviously something that people are if they're if they're DMing you with with uh, an SOS, you know, that means that it's a real problem <laughs> <laughs> out there, you know? Yeah, 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 for sure. Um, yeah. All right. Next up. Uh, designer, fashion designer, Jason Wu. He had a question for you. Hi, Athena. So if you could have dinner with any of your design heroes at their home, who would it be and why? Okay, good question. Uh, What I want to know is if you had to host a party with folks from around the world of design, living or dead, uh, who would it be? And let's start with that. Um, I was recently in Mexico City and... um, Felt very fortunate to tour the homes and multiple homes of Luis Barragan. And I really fell in love with his spaces, with his kitchen, with his use of kind of monastic design and really a play on shadow and play on, you know, vertical and horizontal architecture and the axis point of those two things. And um, I was just really intrigued by the way he lived. Even his um, rooftop is the, um, he has like that, I think they call it a, like his meditation, like roof, like apparently he used to go up there and like just walk and meditate. And, you know, he was a very religious person and I love so much ceremony and ritual in the home. So I would love to sit at the table with him and just like ask him about like the beautiful simplicity of his design and also like, mm-hmm. Maybe ask him, like, what are what are the three most important moments of the day in your home? And what are the rituals you engage in in your home? Because I was fascinated. His bedroom was so minimal, but he had a turntable. 
Like he had a turn. I mean, clearly music was important to him. Um, but like everything was just like, everything felt like an altar. Like I feel like the turntable had like a piece of fabric that was like draped over it. The side table had fabric that was draped over it. Like everything felt like religion and he was a religious man. So like, I guess I would just want to like better understand like what his, what his day was like in his home and what would I serve? Um, you know, I'm a big believer in um, when you're entertaining of making something that uh, can be like prepared in advance. So I would either make like a something that was braised, like braised short ribs, or perhaps like a whole roasted chicken with, you know, beautifully golden roasted vegetables. And All right. So uh, Baragon, that's one. Is there any... Uh, any yeah. Anyone else I want to sit at the table with me? Yeah. I mean, Jean-Michel Franck would be amazing. What about if someone living? You could just like, who would you, who would be the third person to invite to a dinner with Jean-Michel Franck and, and Baragon? You know, I just, one of my best friends is Nate Burkus, and he's an incredible designer and he's incredible conversationalist and he has mm. an incredible encyclopedia of design knowledge. Um, and he's also just like, you know, one of those people that makes you feel seen and heard and asks really interesting questions and remembers all the fine details. And I just think that he's an incredible conversationalist, probably, you know, he learned from Oprah. So I would, yeah, I mean, me, Nate, Jean-Michel Franck, Louis Bargam. I mean, that's a great dinner party. Maybe we need a that female. A good- we might need a female. Okay. All right. <laughs> well, uh, is there a female that you would want to uh, bring there? Eileen Gray. Okay. That's, I mean, that's a heavy hitting. That's a heavy hitting dinner, uh, right? I think. I think. Yeah. I uh, yeah. <laughs> you definitely have to do the the ribs more than the chicken. I think. Yeah, the chicken doesn't feel special <laughs> enough. It's got to be. Yeah, yeah. If you have like Eileen Gray and like Baragon over for dinner, I don't know. If it's got to be fucking special. Chicken wings are going <laughs> <laughs> to. Thank you to Athena Calderon, Ethan Elkins, Rebecca Goldberg, and to all of our call-in guests for making this episode happen. The editor of The Grand Tourist is Stan Hall. To keep this going, please follow me on Instagram at Dan Rubenstein to learn more. And sign up with your email for updates at thegrandtourist.net. And don't forget to follow The Grand Tourist on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. And leave us a rating or comment. Every little bit helps. Till next time, 